So I want to talk to you tonight about discomfort. And you might think, I didn't come here to hear about discomfort. I came here to feel more comfortable or to get some words of wisdom about making my life less stressful and more easy, more, more comfortable. But I actually think that learning to understand, work with, and even tolerate, perhaps uh, celebrate these experiences of discomfort are what actually allows us to grow, to learn, to change. In our lives and our meditation practice, we're often cycling through these three states, comfort, discomfort, and overwhelm. And most of us very naturally are oriented to the comfort zone, right? We look for it in our experience, and we think the other two are bad and wrong and shouldn't be happening. We want to get back to that state of comfort. So we create our lives to have comfort, our home situations, our work situations, our friends, our family. We tend to look to be surrounded by people we feel comfortable with whatever that looks like for you, whether it's um, that they look the same as you from the same economic background or they have the same interests or family situation, the same race, the same class, sexual orientation, whatever it is, we can tend to orient to that because it's easier for us, this sense of comfort and ease with what's familiar. But what happens often is, and do, sorry, do you have your hearing aid? Do you need your, your hearing Peace. Don't want her to sit there for a whole hour and not be able to hear anything. Thank you. Um, what can happen though in this search for comfort, we develop habits and we get conditioned by it and it can actually limit our sense of possibility for ourselves and our lives. Habits basically get created to make us feel more comfortable. You know, we develop these routines so we don't have to keep thinking, where do I go for lunch? Where do I get the best coffee? Who do I sit with? You know, what route do I take to work? Whatever it might be. We fall into a pattern, we know it works, and then we don't question it again. That's how habits get developed. Habits are actually, can be, quite helpful because we don't have to expend as much energy figuring things out. But they definitely narrow our sense of possibility and can even become ruts and can find ourselves in habit patterns that no longer serve us. But because they're so familiar, that's the direction we go. We don't question it. So being willing to move a little outside this comfort zone, a little outside our habit patterns, actually can allow us to grow this out of this sense of limitation, this sense of restriction. Now, it's understandable that you've come here tonight to meditation, however long you've been doing it for, probably to seek more comfort, right? To actually reduce the sense of stress, of pressure, of uh, uncertainty, <coughs> whatever it is that, that's pushing you, suffering even in your life, and, and seeing that meditation can be a way out of that. And it's true. Meditation is a great antidote, uh, balancer, solution perhaps, 
to this, this, this stress, the anxiety that many of us feel. It's why they call one thread of our, our um, tradition MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, because it's so powerful, this practice of mindfulness for hel helping us deal with stress or pain in our lives. So I don't want to deny the power and even the importance of that, that we can and do use meditation to reduce stress, to increase comfort. But this is not the final end goal of this meditation practice, and it's certainly not what the Buddha taught for. The Buddha said he didn't teach just for wholesome states of mind. He actually taught to, find, to help us find the end of suffering, to really see clearly in our lives, not just get into some slightly more comfortable place. At the other end of the spectrum from comfort is that state of overwhelm or chronic stress that many of us find ourselves in, whether it's for periods in our life, perhaps for extended periods. And this can be really challenging. If we're always feeling pressure, stress, impatience, irritability, overwhelm, it takes a toll on us, of course, uh, on our health, on our physical health, because the body feels the impact of that stress. It takes a toll on our uh, emotional and mental well-being. It takes a toll on our relationships. When we're in that state of overwhelm or chronic stress, what we tend to do is shut down push away, avoid, because we just can't tolerate that impact of whatever the situation is, and we numb out. This is not a useful or healthy state to be in, where the, the, uh, what's coming in has been so overwhelming that we just close down and can't be mindful, can't be open to that experience, can't learn, can't explore, because we're so tight, so resistant, to experience. So meditation can be really helpful if we find ourselves in that kind of experience where we're really overwhelmed. And it starts with the willingness to recognize that's what's happening. So much of mindfulness is about acknowledging our experience as it is. This is overwhelm. This is stress. This is impatience, this is anger or fear, whatever it might be. Often what happens, though, is we have the initial situation, whatever that is, that has its stress. Our job is changing, or our boss is really hard on us, or our family situation has a lot of challenges in it. So there's that situation which has its challenges, but most of us add on what the Buddha called the second arrow or the second dart which is all of the resistance and the complaining about it of this shouldn't be happening. I don't like this. I don't want this. Why me? How can I get out of this? And we actually compound the suffering. We compound the stress through that resistance, through that unwillingness to open to what is happening, the truth of the situation. And I actually think that we can tolerate far more than we give ourselves credit for. But this tendency to shut down, to, to pull away, to resist, doesn't let us explore that edge 
in a way that's actually more empowering. I read this in Eckhart Tolle's book, The New Earth. Eckhart Tolle is that uh, German spiritual teacher, very profound and wise person. And he, I love what, the way he uh, encourages us to work with our thoughts and our beliefs. And he said, one of the ego's many erroneous assumptions, one of its many deluded thoughts is, I should not have to suffer. Sometimes the thought gets transferred to someone close to you, my child should not have to suffer. That thought itself lies at the root of suffering. Suffering has a noble purpose, the evolution of consciousness and the burning up of the ego. As long as you resist suffering, it is a slow process because the resistance creates more ego to burn up. When you accept suffering, however, there is an acceleration of that process, which is brought about by the fact that you suffer consciously. You can accept suffering for yourself, or you can accept it for someone else, such as your child or parent. In the midst of conscious suffering, there is already the transmutation. The fire of suffering becomes the light of consciousness. So it's his very willingness to be in the challenge without resistance, as he said, that is the transmutation, where the change, the learning, the growth can happen. We have to open to it, bring our mindfulness to it, accept it. And so we can use the meditation practice to actually come into contact, more into contact with what's difficult, not help us learn to run away from it or repress or deny it, but actually feel what's happening. Often the overwhelm, the sense of stress is fear. It's out of fear and fear is nearly always a projection into the future. I can deal with this right now, but oh my God, tomorrow or even tonight or the next hour, I can't bear it. I don't think I can bear this. This is intolerable. Mark Twain said something like, and I haven't quite got the quote right, I've been through some terrible things in my life, most of which never happened. <laughs> and we can do that. We, we're the victims of our own imaginings. And beca but because of that cycle of thinking, of fear-based thinking, we, th we lead ourselves to being in a state of chronic stress and fear um, because of that. So one of my friends and colleagues, James Barra, as I'm sure many of you know him, likes to challenge us by saying, what story are you believing right now? If you're in this situation of overwhelm or anxiety or fear or resistance or anger or impatience, what's the story? If you can encapsulate it into a few words, then you have a handle on it. You can see, is it true or not? I also really like... Byron Katie's teaching, she's a bit like Eckhart Tolle, she really challenges us to look at our thought structures because it's with our thoughts that we create these worlds of fear and gloom and doom and all of the problems. And it's not to deny the reality of the challenges in our lives, the physical challenges, mental health, emotional, for ourselves and others. But as I said, we compound them through our thoughts and the way we relate to them. So Byron Katie asks these four questions she calls the work. If you find yourself in this catastrophic thinking, this overwhelmed thinking, she says, ask yourself, is it true? And usually we say, damn right it's true. You know, they shouldn't have said that. And I, I should have been able to have this. And this shouldn't have happened to me. 
But then the second question is, is it really true? Is it always true? Is it 100% true? Is it never, never, never not true? And after a little while, you kind of have to say, well, maybe not always, or maybe, you know, on this occasion. And she just starts to put a chink in that thinking, in that story that we've been holding on to and believing. And then she says, who are you when you believe that thought? So she asks us to inhabit it, to feel what it's like when we believe that we're bad or wrong or they're bad or wrong. And there's, we feel the tightness and the suffering in that. And then lastly, who are you without that thought? To feel the lightness, the relief when we just let go of that thought, which is just a thought. It's just a string of words in the mind. Really powerful, helpful work if you find yourself in this state of overwhelm. And then lastly, the real kicker is, she says, reverse it. Make the opposite true. What if you believe the opposite? It's like, whoa, maybe I should have done that, or they were right to do that. And we just start to challenge this imaginary world, as Mark Twain said, most of which never happened, isn't actually happening right now. So we work with the thoughts that create the sense of overwhelm. We use our mindfulness practice to actually get in touch with what we're feeling. Not in some intellectual sense, not in some rote sense, but the actual physicality of how these experiences, emotions, moods, states of mind, thoughts, images, whatever it is, projections, how are they impacting us? What is the emotion? Is it fear? Is it anxiety? Is it stress? Is it pressure? Is it impatience? Is it anger? Is it fear? So we start to actually name it. And the Buddha taught this 2,600 years ago, the power of naming what's happening. Just naming it and knowing it, the mind can release a little. But now we actually know it's true because science has told us. Um, and actually, it was in the New York Times, so it must be true. Uh, just literally the other day, I read an article that was called The Importance of Naming Your Emotions. And even though the journalist, the right author, didn't say, I'm sure the research is based in mindfulness, and he's probably a practitioner, he didn't come clean with that. But he's using it in the workplace where he's encouraging people as they start a meeting, as they work together in groups, to just spend a few moments actually naming what they're feeling. And not in the rote sense, how are you fine, how are you good, how are you fine, our usual you know, non-answer, but letting people take some space to say what they're feeling. And it's not about group process, they didn't actually do anything about what the people said, but just the naming shifted the energy in the room, allowed people to be more present more real and more true. So they're finding it really helpful in the workplace. This practice that we've known has worked for all the years, whatever you've been practicing, for me many years now, the Buddha 2,600 years ago. We use this practice again and again, um, really helpful, called RAIN. It's an acronym that we teach on retreats, we teach in classes, and it now has become so well known that I, I taught it, I'm leading a beginning meditation class here at Spirit Rock, we're on our, just did the fifth class last week, the last one is this Thursday, and I talked to the people, the students about RAIN, um, and the next week a, the a student came back and said, oh, it is, you know, it's real, because it's in a magazine, and this is in the experience, 
experiencelife.com mag or experience life magazine. I don't even know what it is, but it says feeling overwhelmed, remember rain. So again, must be true. So their de definition of rain is it's four steps to stop being so hard on ourselves. R, recognize what's going on. So the R is for recognize. A, allow the experience to be there just as it is. We often say accept. So recognize, accept. I, investigate with kindness. You could say interest, investigation. I actually like intimacy. We get closer to the experience. And then the N, they say, stands for natural awareness, which, which comes from not identifying with the experience. And that's the, the important thing, not personal, not identifying. It does, to recognize anger, no anger, doesn't make you an angry person or always angry. Anger is just happening. Fear is just happening. And we can know that. So rain, really helpful if you're having a strong experience of overwhelm, stress, any kinds of emotion. We can do metta practice. Many of you know the practice of loving-kindness. Sharon Salzberg, a wonderful teacher, was just here over the weekend teaching on metta and equanimity. Both of them are really helpful practices. In the metta, we just repeat phrases that affirm our wish to be well and happy. May I, may I be at ease. May I be healthy. May I open to this with kindness. You can say these phrases if you find you're stressed. Or the equanimity practice where we just acknowledge very clearly, this is what's happening. This is how things are right now. And we breathe with that experience, not resisting it, not pushing away. This is the truth of the moment. So equanimity can be really helpful. And important to remember that because we're living, breathing human beings, we're, we're very sensitive and we, have, we, we do respond to this input from outside, to our thoughts and our memories. We will get out of balance. Stress will happen. Overwhelm will happen. So it's not that it shouldn't happen. If we were good Buddhists or good meditators, it wouldn't happen. It'll happen. But more the answer or the response is we know how to come back into balance. We trust that we can find balance, that we know how to navigate our way back to that using our tools of mindfulness, that it's possible to actually open to these very intense experiences, to know them for what they are, to feel them quite fully, but not be overwhelmed. Or if we do get overwhelmed, to find our way back to balance. That's really the true key to meditation practice. But this area of discomfort is the one that I'm most interested in talking about tonight. That's where we're outside our comfort zone, but we're not in overwhelm mode, where we're just really having to kind of do triage, to kind of work out how, how to come back into balance. When we're in the discomfort zone, we're a little perhaps uneasy, we're a little out of uh, what's familiar, but we're still able to be in touch, hopefully, with what's happening. So, you know, and we'll fluctuate, of course. It's not like these are clearly defined experiences and, and, and sep quite clearly demarcated. We'll move in and out of all of them. 
for some of us, this is actually an exciting place to be, um, to actually have this sense of challenge and, 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 and newness. Others of us, we just go into freeze mode. You know, examinations, remember, you know, being graded in school, in college or whatever. Some people thrive on that. Other people, they just close down. I had to go today to the DMV just to get my license renewed. And it's amazing. They call you up to the counter and they ask you a few questions. You're like, am I going to get the questions right? There's an eye test. Am I going to see, you know, and the adrenaline picks up, right? It's like, and this nice man is talking to me, but I have that sense of being questioned. And you can find yourself just responding in that very habitual way of, uh, am I going to be okay? And so I was thinking about examinations and how they don't necessarily bring the best out in us. And I don't know even why I collected this piece, but it's a, 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 a I don't even know if it's real, you know, I got it on the internet, what can I say? But it says, pre-test, answer these questions as accurately as possible. So this is someone who was either in total brain freeze or, as they say on the here, A-plus for creativity. In which battle did Napoleon die? His last one. Where was the Declaration of Independence signed? These are the answers. On the bottom of the page. <laughs> River Ravi flows in which state? The liquid state. What is the main reason for divorce? Marriage. What is the main reason for exams? Failure. I don't know what that one means. What can you never eat for breakfast? Lunch and dinner. What looks like half of an apple? The other half. So I don't think these, this can't be a test, right? But I, I got it on the internet. If you threw a red stone into the blue sea, what will it become? Wet. How can a man go eight days without sleeping? Easy, sleep at night. If you had three apples and four oranges in one hand and three oranges and four apples in the other hand, what would you have? Very large hands. If it took eight men ten hours to build a brick wall, how long would it take four men to build it? No time at all. The wall was already built. So you got an F for the answers, but A for creativity. So sometimes when we're in that stress zone, we get creative, it's exciting. Other times we actually can freeze. It's, it's not a place that we uh, are okay in. Coming on retreat can do that for us. How many people here have been on a residential retreat? So a few, third or so. You know, it's a thing that many people love doing, want to do. New people are coming all the time. They're not easy. You know, I don't know what you think about the, you know, we often joke the word retreat. You think we think we're going to hand you your terry, terry cloth robe and your spa slippers and, you know, massage at 10 o'clock. It's not like that. There's actually, you know, quite a, a, a rigorous schedule and the body aches and the mind complains and the diet is different. There can be a lot of discomfort in retreat. But people come again and again because in that discomfort, we find an edge where we know we can grow and learn. And the learning uh, in this practice, whether you do it on, in a, on a daily basis or on retreat, happens on two levels. We can learn on the very personal level, where we start to understand our own minds and hearts. 
where we start to see our habits and our conditioning. And as I said, how they can sometimes be limiting. We look at our mind and we see it's crazy. The good news is you're not alone. We're all a little bit crazy. Our minds are out of control. And what a lot of people see when they start to pay attention to their minds is we're full of judgmental, critical, complaining thoughts all the time, just about this and that. It can be really humbling to see the extent of that. And so we start to open to that with kindness and acceptance. This is how it is. And the more we're willing to do that, the more the, the truer aspect of ourselves, the kindness, the compassion, the gratitude can really start to flower and open. But we also start to see on an impersonal level, we start to see what we call the nature of reality that the Buddha talked about again and again, that things are impermanent, always changing. There's nothing solid here. As solid as it seems, it's actually more space than solidity and will change. That um, there's an un inherent unsatisfactoriness to objects, to the conditioned realm, because, because of that changing nature, that there's nothing actually solid here. And this can be very discomforting. You know, we think we're coming to sort of feel better about things and we're telling you nothing solid there, it's all changing. Then what do we rely on? Where's the, where's the ground in that? And it can be actually quite destabilizing to hear some of these teachings. But as we start to find a sense of connection to ourselves, to the present moment, in this breath, in this body, we actually start to trust this knowing, this way of seeing. And it's not so scary. And we actually can really learn from that. But being willing to be shaken up a bit is what allows the new insight. We call this insight meditation for a reason. We have to be open. We can't just be in our solid habitual patterns. Nothing new can grow or change there. I can remember I did my first retreat so many years ago, I don't even want to mention, but started doing intensive metta practice in the mid-90s and did my first six-week metta retreat at a retreat center in Massachusetts. And I hadn't done intensive metta practice before. I'd just done it you know, occasionally, a few minutes at the end of a, a day of practice or a retreat. And so dove in the deep end with six weeks. It was really hard. I was... Well, you know, thinking, why did I want to do this? Again, you might think metta, loving kindness, sounds so wonderful. Just spend a day or a week or a month wishing well. Believe me, not so. Because it's a purification practice. And anything that's an obstacle to your sense of well-wishing for yourself or for others will come up. And it did for me really strongly. And I can remember... I just wanted to flee that place. I was looking at the planes going overhead. I was even looking at the school buses, thinking I'd rather be on a school bus than be here practicing. But I had nowhere to go. This retreat center is in the middle of nowhere. You know, my house was sublet. My didn't have a plane ticket or a way out. So I had to stick it out. I did stick it out. And it was only because I was willing to stay there in that immense discomfort of feeling bad about myself, bad about my life choices that enabled the transformation and the metta to actually grow into acceptance and then love, willingness to be in the discomfort zone. But it's really understandable that many of us do anything to avoid that. 
a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of dis-ease, and we run the other direction to our comfort zone, to comfort food, to comfort whatever it is we take in to numb out. For many of us, it's entertainment or the media, and it's so ubiquitous these days. It's like, you know, even at the DMV today, everyone is like on their smartphone, looking, reading, texting, whatever they're doing, don't know what they're doing, but just to not actually sit there and be in the experience of waiting at the DMV, as you do these days, you wait a long time. But unless we're willing to step a little into discomfort, we will not find change. So the tolerating of even the littlest bit, you know, meditating when we start, it's not easy, right? If you're new to it, you sit down and someone tells you to be with the breath, just relax, you're like, what are you talking about? My mind's running a mile a minute, my back is aching, I've got to get this project done by tomorrow. What are you talking about? It's uncomfortable often. But to tolerate the discomfort, to actually be open, willing to explore it, to trust the teachings, to trust staying with it, if you can do that, you can actually learn anything. You can change any habit pattern, you can make any change, any shift that you want to in your life, whether it's learning meditation or changing your diet or beginning to exercise. We don't have to dive in the deep end. You don't have to do a six-week meditation retreat like I did, but just whatever feels right for you. But we all have to get to that edge and be willing to tolerate that sense of discomfort. Actually, what we really need to be able to do is to navigate all three of those states that I mentioned. The comfort zone, to know how to cultivate that and, and feel at home and at ease, but not stay stuck there. The overwhelm, know how to work with that. And then this realm of discomfort, to be actually willing and even interested to be there at times. Again, we don't want to live there. We don't want to stay in that realm. But that's where the learning can really happen. In meditation, as in anything, we do want to have a basic foundation of the comfort. Even the Buddha said we need what he called the four requisites before we can start to meditate. We need to know, you know, that we have housing, food, um, medicine, clothing, that those need to be taken care of. Otherwise, we're just struggling too much to take take care of those things. So need to have those kind of foundational things and then we can start to do the practice. As we get more in touch with, more accepting of this mind and body, however it's manifesting in any of these ranges, we can actually find ease and acceptance no matter what's happening that this sense of equanimity, this sense of openness, this sense of curiosity can develop so the mind can actually be very resilient, very flexible, very open. We can start to trust our experience because we know if we get overwhelmed, we can find our way back to balance. We know that actually being in experience, feeling it fully, isn't going to lead us into more overwhelm, but actually bring us back into balance, back into ease, back into equanimity. And so just from these simple practices that we did a little bit tonight, feeling the body, knowing the breath, 
recognizing emotions, using that acronym of RAIN if that's helpful, but just, I said, just naming them. Oh, this is stress or anxiety or impatience or fear, worry, planning. And we breathe with it. We breathe with it. We open to it. Even if you're just taking a moment in the middle of your busy day, at the beginning of a phone call or a difficult interaction that you know you have to have, it can be really profound, really shift um, the trajectory. And out of that sense of connection and trust, the beautiful qualities of the heart really can start to flower, of compassion, of kindness, of generosity, of gratitude, of equanimity, really just starts from this simple willingness to be with even the difficult, even the stressful, even the challenging parts. But as I said at the beginning, that, even that, those beautiful qualities are not the end of what the Buddha was teaching for. He said we use those, we develop those, they're really important, they're essential for our path of practice, but they are the springboard for the inquiry, the insight to happen. What is the true nature of things? How do we get caught in suffering again and again? What is the, the, the reason that, that we get confused all the time? He said, look at this. Look at these very deep questions. When the mind has this kind of stability and flexibility and resilience that can really bring the wisdom in, where we can start to understand our, our world and our life for ourselves as individuals, but in the bigger picture too. So it's really a very, um, this path is often called a gradual path. It's very developmental. We start right where we are with this body, this mind, this breath, but it can deepen to the most profound and life-changing possibilities if we continue with it. Out of being willing to tolerate some level, at times, of discomfort. This sense of not quite knowing what's next, what's here, what am I opening to. If we always knew, it'd just be the same old, same old. We need to get to that edge so that we're actually learning and growing. As I was thinking about this, I thought of going swimming in the ocean, which I love to do. I love, if ever I have the possibility, I love to do it, so there I am, I've done whatever it takes, it's not usually that easy to get to go swim in the ocean here. Um, Sometimes, you know, it's in Hawaii where the water's actually quite pleasant, but I always get to that place just above the knees where the body just says, no, you know, it's too cold, you know, and, and don't do this, it doesn't feel good, you know, that everything just kind of contracts a little. And it's happened often enough that I've learned, don't listen to that voice, dive in. And you dive in and you're just completely taken by that sensation of the water and the freshness. And it's great, I love it. Even swimming here, you know, Tamales Bay or Limantua Beach. I mean, there the body really says, what are you doing to me? You know, this is ridiculous. But you dive in, you dive under that wave and it's exhilarating. We, if we, we have to learn not to listen to that place that says, don't go there, this is not safe. And I'm not, you know, please stay safe, whatever. I'm talking about just this discomfort zone, you know, not running out and playing chicken with the bus or whatever. We're not talking about that. 
here at Spirit Rock, one of, as I said, we're really trying to be as welcoming and open to people from all backgrounds, all abilities, economic, class, um, gender, orientation, race, whatever it might be. Um, and so we're having to grow in that area. I know for myself, grew up in a pretty sort of white middle-class suburb in Melbourne, Australia, very to me, boring. I don't know, you probably think it's exotic, but to me it's pretty boring. I just came back from there. But re lived, grew up with people pretty much like me. Um, and to realize that I need to stretch and grow and change my way of understanding things if I'm going to be as welcoming as possible to anyone who wants to come at, to Spirit Rock. So I'm in a circle of teachers that are sharing our learning and growth in diversity work. We, we're reading books together and having conversations. So we really can be very uh, revealing to each other about the challenges of not just doing things the way we've always done them. You know, oh, this is the way we do things at Spirit Rock. It's always worked. Why should we change? Well, it's not welcoming to people, or it's not inclusive, or it doesn't allow uh, everyone who might want to come feel part of our center. So there's often a sense of discomfort in that work. But that's when I know I'm actually learning something and doing it in a way that's going to be growthful for me. And I hope that it makes Spirit Rock a more inclusive and welcoming place. So we can choose to do things. We do choose to do things that take us out of our comfort zones. Why we travel, why do you go on adventure rides? I mean, I don't very much anymore, but you know, what, that's that urge, right? To be sort of shaken up a little. So we have these new experiences. And we know that we have to trust that in our meditation practice, in our spiritual work uh, uh, itself. Um, and to realize that there really isn't such a thing as failure. Failure is not final. Failure is not an identity. Failure is just another chance to learn to do things differently, to grow, to change. Albert Einstein said something like, anyone who has never made a mistake has never tried anything new. Most inventions come out of a failure. They were trying to do one thing and they found something completely different. So we have to have that willingness to explore, to grow. As Jack Cornfield often says, uh-oh, about to grow. You know, those <laughs> moments where we're just at that edge, but we're willing to step into that experience because we know it's where um, we're actually going to learn something. We can often feel that these challenges are the, the, the body response, just like my, I was talking about going in the ocean, is kind of visceral, primal. We shrink back, feel almost life-threatening. Again, I'm not talking about playing chicken with the bus or whatever, just about within our inner experience. I have to trust that most of the time it's not, right? We're not really threatened. Can we open to this experience? Can we meet this new set of colleagues at work or... Um, way of doing things? Can we breathe with it? Can we open to it? Can we stay present for it? One of the things I like to talk about is what I call mindfulness when it matters. I don't personally have the intention to be mindful all the time. I mean, maybe I should, maybe to be great, but I do think it's important to be mindful when it matters. When there's some experience that's uh, impactful, whether it's physical, emotional, 
whether it's uh, meeting a new situation, a new person, that I'm fully present for that, that I'm willing to actually be there and be in my body meeting that situation. So mindfulness when it matters, just with the breath, just with the body, naming your experience. Once we're in that place of inhabiting, of integration, then, as I said, these beautiful qualities just naturally manifest. The kindness, the compassion, the gratitude, the acceptance. Because we've started to trust ourselves. Even if we get shaken a little, we know we can find our way back to balance. We have this sort of foundational trust or acceptance of who we are and how we are in the world. And this deep sense of inner knowing is developed, where as uh, this beautiful poem, I love to quote it, a a Japanese nun, I think she was, from the 10th century, Izumi Shikipu, watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I know myself completely, no part left out. And I think this is the promise, the, the gift, the challenge of meditation, no part left out. So we live our lives from that place of integration, from that sense of, of uh, connection to ourselves and knowing we can navigate through these different states of being. And we're not so swayed by what's known in Buddhism as the eight worldly conditions. Praise and blame, fame and uh, disrepute, gain and loss, happiness and unhappiness. I would add discomfort and comfort. We're not so shaken by those. They will come. They come to everyone. They came to the Buddha. But Ajahn Chah, the Thai meditation master, says true success isn't just having the four positive ones, you know, fame and gain and happiness and uh, good reputation. It's not being swayed by any of them. That's true uh, success. And so we can, from this practice, develop this sense of balance, this resilience, this being in harmony with how things are and true equanimity, where what we discover or what we look to cultivate is well-being and contentment, true happiness, not just comfort, not staying in our comfort zone, holding everything else at bay, sheltering ourselves, but actually trusting our experience and trusting ourselves to meet the changing nature of what's happening, because it will change. It will challenge us. It's the nature of existence. It's the nature of reality to be difficult. The First Noble Truth said there is suffering, but the Buddha also said there's an end to suffering, and we can be on that path to the end of suffering, starting here, right now, with breathing, relaxing, opening, allowing and connecting. So I'm happy to be able to talk to you about this tonight. I hope it was helpful and in our last moments together I'm curious to see anything I said resonated for you or to hear from you your experience of being outside your comfort zone in that realm of discomfort, what it was like for you, what you learnt, what you do to help you stay as long as you need to in that realm of zone of discomfort, how you find your way back to a sense of balance. Anything anyone 
wish to share, and Helga has the microphone. It's helpful just so people can hear. Helga, there's someone here on your right. Oh, thank you, Sally. Hi. Really nice. Um, uh, there's a friend of mine, her name is Cole Swenson, you may know who she is. She's a very, very well-known poet. She grew up in San Anselmo. Mm -hmm. In the beginning of one of her books called Ghosts, she has a simple insight. It's not an aphorism. It's this. The universe is not personal. Mm -hmm. It simply is mm -hmm. not. Now, we are personal. Mm -hmm. And in that respect, I, I'd just like to, a quick anecdote. I have a twin sister who lost her husband 11 years ago. He was a prominent doctor, very successful, and they had a lovely life, 42 years of marriage, and he died in his late 60s of um, cancer. She survived. Obviously, this is a, you know, now a plateau here for suffering. But a couple of years ago, I, I promised her I, would not, I wouldn't do anything to try to jumpstart her out of her suffering mm. because she was very resistant. I said, go ahead, sweetie, it's yours. There's nothing I can say. But I remember her saying something, and I'll get to the point. She said, in, in a kind of the vernacular, to make it more poignant, she said, one like him I'll never find again. And in saying that, she increased the value of the loss mm. and therefore increased the intensity of the suffering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The point of, is this. There is suffering and then there is the narrative mm -hmm. or the story. Yeah. They are two different things. Yeah. I, I, I don't say give up your suffering. Give up the damn story. Because yes. that will drive you crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And I think you're referring to what I was talking about, that second dot or second arrow, which is the narrative, the blaming, the victim kind of mentality, the stuckness of it. And the Buddha said, you can, you know, his analogy is called the second arrow because he said it's like someone, you, you get shot with one dart, but then the second one, he said, you won't take it out until who shot the dart, what, what nationality were they, what color was the feathers on the dart, you know, where did it fly from? It's like you, you're going to go before you get the answers to these questions. It's like, just take it out, take it out. Someone here has the microphone. Yes. Thank you, Sally. Yes. I'm Susan. I have just been through an anxious period mm. with creating an online course, and mm. there's something about both the video and the audio. And it's such a familiar feeling mm. of stretching to an unfamiliar place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of me that is deeply suffering and feeling too small for this big mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there's a part of me that says, now you are in this part of the creative process. Yes. And pretty soon, then there's too much information and it will never come together. And then it comes together and then you feel good about it. And it doesn't really help all the suffering in the moment. It's just there. Yes. Yeah. I can't sleep because I'm not able to do this. And then I can have the same perspective larger at the same time. I find it fascinating, but... 
a very familiar experience, I'm sure, for a lot of people where we actually know, you know, yeah. that we'll be okay or that we will do it, you know. We are doing it. I mean, that's what <laughs> I have to get to. You know, I am doing it. All of the doubts and the judgments, they are not helping, you know. <laughs> no. And just to see that playing out, it's a habit pattern of mind. You know, as I said, the sense of devaluing ourselves, the critical thinking, not helpful. What do we need to do to get the task done? Trust that you will do it, and more is extra. And I think we just need to see that, to suffer through it enough that we finally say, enough. I'm not going to do this to myself, because it doesn't help the creative process to be in that state of stress and worry. You know, a little bit you need, you know, as I say, if you're going on stage and you don't have a little bit of stage fright, you're not nervous enough kind of thing, you need that adrenaline. But uh, to really just see, it's extra, it's extra. And I mean, what I always come down to is I am doing it, you know, I'm doing the <laughs> online course, I'm doing the video, I'm sitting up and talking to 100 people. Let go of the story because it doesn't help, it doesn't help. And, it, you know, even though it sounds so simple, the naming, oh, this is stress, how do I feel it? Even to take a moment to do that, I honestly and truly believe that it does shift, not in some magic way, but if we're willing to do it over time, it will shift that patterning because we'll start to disbelieve the story. Mm. I actually experience it a little differently. Maybe I should just be listening more deeply to you. Mm -hmm. But it may be that going beyond where I've ever been before and pushing myself a little, that it's an inherent part of the process mm -hmm. and accepting that it's an inherent part because if I, in this case for instance, I went looking for this story mm. but it feels more like now this is the stage of this creative right. process and I think for me just moving through it and naming it is my path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was responding when you said you weren't sleeping and things like yeah, that, which right. sounds like that's actually taking a toll. If you can navigate it and be okay with it, but I think we just have to, as you say, stay with it and be in it and not, you know, causing the second arrow of, you know, I'm not yeah. doing it right and this shouldn't be happening. As you say, this is part of that process. Um, and as long as you're in tune and in touch with that, great. We don't but, have to like it. Yes. <laughs> it's That's kind true. of like being up to here in the water. Yes, yes. And diving in, keeping going. There's one Helga over here. Hi. Hi. <laughs> yeah. I was sick for a while, um, mm. and I'm fine now. Mm. But it was two and a half months of not knowing what I had, mm. and that not knowing was that was the part that was so hard. Yeah, it caused me anxiety. I ended up in the hospital because I was anxious. Well, there's that. That yes. kind of thing. Yeah. 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 So once I found out what I had, it lasted another few months, 
but I was okay with it because I can be sick, I can be uncomfortable, I can whatever all the symptoms I had. But that not knowing that is just that is a hard such one a because challenge. in that space we project all everything, yes. all of our worst fears. But I do think that meditation can be helpful in can I just stay with what's true right now? Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a a whole school of meditation where the practice is don't know, you know, don't know. Or what is this? What is this? Just again and again coming back to questioning here and now because the don't know is always going into the future. And the meditation practice is I don't know the future. No one does. No one does. But can I know this moment? And it's a hard practice, mm -hmm. but I think can be really helpful. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks thank so you. much. Yeah. Oh, one last one here right at the front. Helga's getting her work out today. Hi. Hi. Um, so I asked someone out about a week ago and I got turned down. Hmm. And I just, I can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I did it is because I was, I was thinking about it a lot. And so I decided to just go for it because uh -huh. I, I just wanted to stop thinking about it and just wanted to know either way. But it really didn't solve the problem. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm just, you know, kind of at a loss for what to do at this point. You know, I feel like I've processed what happened and, you know, it, you know, I got information. <laughs> great. <laughs> and... Um, I don't feel like I resent this person. I even did some meta practice that I feel like was, you know, 80% sincere. And I, <laughs> um, I'm just kind of at, you know, I'm, I think maybe I am kind of create, maybe creating story, like stories. I, I, a lot of it's kind of fixated on what's going to happen the next time I see this person. Yeah, yeah, and, sure. Yeah, so I don't know. I just uh, do you have any ideas on maybe how to kind of just move along and relationship counselor, um, or not really relationship, no relationship. Uh, there's probably a lot of guys in this room going, now you know what it feels like. You know, they're usually on the other end of the foot. So I'm really happy that you did that, that you stretched into your discomfort zone and you didn't get the result you want. That will happen, you know, and. Our practice is, this is what happened. You know, this is the equanimity. And it sounds like you, you've done some good work with it. You know, I, I love that you're honest. 80% uh, authentic meta, you know. But we do need to look at that other 20% because that's the 20% that is going to be sticky when you see that person next. If you can just say, you know, this is how it is and I wish you well, I think that will make that moment a lot easier and I wouldn't be surprised I don't know if you've done this in other groups of a hundred people where you've talked about this but just naming it now that's a powerful thing to do I did this and it didn't work out and I'm really working with it it's hard there's isn't there something like oh you know that's a, a real stage in just letting go of this and learning from it so I just trust what you're doing and the mindfulness, uh, just being really honest with yourself. Yeah, life will do this to you. And we pick ourselves up. And you're not broken, you know. You know, you know, you'll, you can do it again. You'll survive. It's 
not easy. Huh? <laughs> but that's lot, you know, that's that willingness, that's how we keep growing. You know, unless you uh, you know, ask for the raise, you know, make that phone call, talk to someone you're really curious about, whether it's for a relationship or just to connect with them, you know, that's how things happen for us. So I love that you did that and I'm sorry it hurt and I think you'll grow from it. Yeah, thank you. Okay, we need to begin winding up. So let's just take a moment to sit together one last minute or two. It's considered uh, meritorious to come and practice together like this, to sit in silence, to hear the Dhamma. So we've generated a whole field here in this room that will benefit you. It'll benefit the people that you meet in the coming days and weeks. But more than that, we can offer the benefit of our practice to the welfare and happiness, well-being of all beings everywhere. So in this way, our practice is not just for ourselves, but we can share it with all beings. So may all beings everywhere be well, happy, and peaceful. And my last mindfulness practice for you as you leave You turn right out of Spirit Rock. You turn left into Woodacre. It takes two extra minutes, and I'll be watching because I live in Woodacre, and I see the people who don't do that, and that causes us great distress, and there's often a policeman waiting to catch you, so it's not safe. And Sean has an announcement. Oh, we can keep out the chairs. Cushions away? Cushions can go away, so don't need to move your chairs. Take your personal belongings. Thank you for being here. Maybe see you again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.